my name's Keith Williams. I'm um, co-director of the, the university's esteem unit, which is a joint activity between the science and the mass computing and technology faculties to investigate, develop, and elaborate on our scholarship associated with, uh, with teaching and learning, particularly associated with teaching and learning STEM subjects in a distance, uh, distance teaching environment. So this is the second of, of two days of conference activity that we've, uh, we've sponsored. Yesterday was predominantly displaying the, uh, the project work that our associates have been active on over the, uh, the past year and sharing that through to a predominantly internal audience. Today takes us into a little more exploratory territory associated with some of the, uh, the aspects of, of teaching and learning. We've, we've tried to put together a day that is an active day and covers what I think are very important aspects of our, our work in, in, in teaching. We're um, a university that works in a, in a multimedia forum. We have always used text, graphics, and so, and so on in our teaching. And as more and more of our materials are delivered online, so the options and the availability to use these techniques interactively start to, uh, start to expand. So during the day, what we want to do is to explore different ways in which we are using pictures and graphics to both teach and uh, in, in assessment. Um, we're, we're well used to using the, uh, the terms associated with literacy and numeracy. I don't know if there's a term picturacy or graphicy that applies, but clearly, increasingly, we're working in a, in a, in a graphics graphics world, and I think today gives us the opportunity to explore some of the things that are, are going on in the university and externally in the, the use of pictures to help people think and, and act. Simon has been sort of one of the big driving forces behind the, um, the design for the, uh, for the day and assembling the interesting range of people that we've, uh, we've got to, uh, to speak and to, uh, to contribute. So I'd like to ask Simon to just say a few words and take us into the, the programme for the day. Thank you. Just, just three brief things before we get going on this. Uh, first of all, part of the inspiration is it comes from uh, partly my work with Stephen Morse, who you'll be taught, missing meeting later on, but also with uh, Tessa Berg from Harriet Watt, uh, who I had a fantastic conversation with some short time ago. It really resolves around uh, how important we think diagrams and pictures are, but how rarely we find them represented in academic work. Rarely by, by comparison to other forms. Even journals that actually have a strong systemic, for example, background have very few diagrams in them. And actually getting published, and I say this with some feeling, getting published with lots of diagrams in your, in your article can be a real problem because diagrams aren't taken seriously. They're not seen as being viable, useful, serious stuff. So part of this, the whole inspiration for today was how can we think about visualization and diagrams? And can we just talk around that a little bit? Because there aren't enough places for us to talk about these things. That's the beginning of it. Um, the process, therefore, works towards this afternoon. Now, interesting, you look at this, the way this is set up. Um, first of all, as you, we go through the day, you'll find your attention wanders. But that's okay because we planned it that way. Um, there'll, there'll be somebody standing here doing some talking. 
there'll be something up there on PowerPoint, as per usual, describing and showing. And there'll be something over there capturing. Capturing? Capturing. Capturing and expressing. And I, it's quite okay for your... By the, by the end of the... I just Probably this should be a public health and safety warning, actually. You may get sort of neck spasms because you may find yourself moving around a lot as you sit down. That's all part of it. Be prepared. Um, the day works towards this middle bit here, which is at the end of the session, at the end of the formal sessions, we want to have a talk-back period. And we'd like to have, rather than asking speakers to come back and talk, we'd like to invite members of the audience to come up and give us your reflections. So, and again, this is a health and safety warning, if you see me walking towards you at lunch with a kind of glint in my eye, it probably, it probably isn't what you think. It's probably I want to invite you to come and sit here at the end of the day and give your thoughts and also take some questions. So also be prepared for that. The last thing I just wanted to briefly mention before we get going is that all the papers which are being presented today will be published in a journal called Systemic Practice and Action Research in a special edition. So if you're desperate to get hold of the printed copy of the genius which will variously be described to you through the course of the day, uh, you can in fact find it in that illustrious uh, journal. Uh, if the term systemic practice and action research doesn't just stay in your mind instantly or just trip off the tongue, it's actually on a poster at the back of the room there and there are some copies of the journal as well if you want to take a quick look. So everything eventually will be published there, probably autumn, winter 2012. Okay, I think I've gone through my list of things as well. So uh, I'd like to invite um, those who will be engaged in capturing today to say a few words, and for that I want to invite Chris Shipton from LiveScribes to say a few words about uh, what's going to happen. Uh, hi, um, am I being amplified? Uh, yeah, my name's um, Chris uh, Shipton, and this is Ricky Marr, and uh, we're from LiveScribes, and what we do is uh, graphic recording. Um, well, it's one of the many things we do. So we're going to be basically live illustrating the talks as they happen on this big bit of paper here. Um, so I'll just give you a little bit of uh, background. Um, uh, I have a degree in drawing um, from uh, art school, and um, you know I've always always uh, been uh, somebody who draws, essentially a cartoonist, and. Um, I've worked in sort of web design and in business and industry and, and things like that, and uh, just recently has now embarked on a career as a visualizer. Um, so that involves events like this, sort of drawing live. Um, I've been getting involved with uh, things like uh, startup weekends and uh, events like that, which are where you know people spend a whole weekend working on a business idea, and it sort of culminates in a competition. And all of that is to do with um, bringing uh, visuals into business. So that's a little bit of my background, sort of what I do. And I'll hand over to Ricky. I've got a similar background to Chris. We actually um, I uh, practiced illustration in um, sort of um, um, fashion and um, sort of publications for a, a little while. Didn't really like it very much. Um, <coughs> and then around five or six years ago, kind of accidentally fell into this um, visualising process where I was asked to go 
and sit in a meeting for a gravy company and draw what was being talked about and didn't have a clue what I was getting involved in. And uh, I was invited because they said, we need somebody who can draw really, really quickly and can draw absolutely anything that, that you ask of them. Um, uh, yeah, and so uh, I gave it a go and um, I've, I've subsequently uh, been, been doing it pretty much full-time since. Um, we work with a huge range of clients um, I do a lot of stuff in the innovation sector, such as product development, communication development, some storyboarding, some filming, uh, sort of film development. Um, and I guess what we really seek to do is kind of get the essence of what's being discussed in a way that maybe um, isn't previously sort of been looked at. Um, I think we, should, we haven't done, I haven't done any drawing. No, that's true. I was supposed to be drawing what Chris was saying at this point. Um, <laughs> shall I jump on? Have you Why got don't more you jump to say? On? I'm gonna, I've prepared some notes and I'll okay. read some very simple headlines that explain why we're here. So, yeah, um, basically, uh, what we're going to do is uh, graphic recording. So, this industry, we've, we've approached this idea of visual thinking from an artistic point of view because of our backgrounds. And the idea is visual thinking is a way of bringing clarity to, uh, to business. And um, so it can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Um, I think essentially what Ricky's doing now is rapidly synthesizing what I'm saying in a visual way. And so what you find is you rely on dipping in and out of the conversation. Uh, so if somebody's speaking live, you tune into one fact they might have uttered, and that'll be the hook for you to visualise or just actually note. You can simply write down what they say as well. And then they'll carry on talking, and then eventually you'll tune back in when you've finished uh, illustrating their point. So you end up with a kind of... a sort of a huge... Uh, range of, uh, of, of different items that you've illustrated, what that does is actually engage everyone here a little bit more in the process of, uh, you know, delivering a speech or something like that. And um, so this is going to get a little bit meta because Ricky's now doing a graphic recording of me talking about graphic recording. But, um, but you know, to sort of build on... On, on it a little. This is, this is kind of a way of observing what people are saying. Um, I think this kind of work, visual thinking, becomes even more interesting when you get people actively involved. So, you know, in an ideal world, we'll get everyone here drawing, and I think in actual fact that might be happening later today. So, um, so this work manifests itself in lots of different ways. We've been looking at sort of ways to bring it to businesses. We found events and things like to have this kind of visualization because it helps people uh, have something to talk about over the course of the day. We also find that um, when people are kind of uh, having meetings and decision-making, going through decision-making processes, it's very good to actually have an illustrator in the room. And what we would do is illustrate insights, concepts, and things like that when they're being discussed. And this applies really well to elements such as 
branding. So if you're coming up with a, a new brand, you might be discussing insights, customer insights, and things like that. It's a very valuable part of the process. One example is um, I was working with a cheese company who uh, was coming up with a new type of cheese. And they were reading out customer insights, having you know, interviewed a lot of people about the way they eat cheese. And it's great material from my point of view as a cartoonist. For instance, they were talking about cheese being an amazing broccoli smuggler. So you can just imagine what I drew as a result. Um, and also, you know, to entertain my younger sister, I'd learned to draw SpongeBob SquarePants many years ago. And amazingly, I found myself in a, essentially a business situation drawing SpongeBob SquarePants without the holes because it was an animated bit of cheese. You know, so, but what's fantastic is the way that this does sort of manifest itself in a business situation. Um, so, you know, that's our approach. We, we, we're trying to bring drawing into business. Um, and, you know, zooming out a little bit, I think the businesses are adopting more visual thinking techniques. And they are a way of sort of engaging people uh, visually as well as. Uh, you know, sort of in cerebrally. I think, you know, one, in, one idea is that people are, they suffer death from PowerPoint. And that's because, not necessarily PowerPoint itself, but the content that goes into it. You know, people, people love pie charts and facts and figures. But actually, if you can engage your audience more with, uh, you know, sort of live <laughs> visualizations or even actually splitting apart a large concept into individual uh, pieces of imagery and text, what you do is you, you, you have a more powerful way of communicating and making uh, business issues clearer to the people it's important to, uh, whether that's customers or whether that's people within your own organization. So that is another source of our work. Oh, these, so this is this is this is what Ricky does all the time. Is there will be sort of uh, clients discussing, uh, you know, these insights, and Ricky will be sitting in a room whilst they come up with all sorts of interesting things. And uh, and it's interesting in terms of methodology. So for instance, that might involve having lots of A4 sheets and drawing each insight on an A4 sheet, and then sticking up on a big wall. You'd have a forest of images, and uh, that becomes a talking point for all the people in the session. So, it, it, you know, it engaged the people from the cheese company, for example, a lot more in the sort of the branding process. Other ways that this sort of visual work can manifest itself is, you know, creating live murals, and then I think, you know. The terminology in all of this is extremely clunky because I think it's a new way of working in business. So if you turn up and say to somebody, you know, I'm a graphic recorder and I'm going to do some live illustration, they do kind of look, what on earth are you talking about? So really, I've taken the saying I'm a cartoonist and then building it on there. But I think going back to my, um, my final sort of thing that I think is important about all of this is... It's about engaging people. It's about bringing visuals into sort of business processes, thinking processes. And I think the ultimate next step is getting people actually actively 
drawing as well. And I think that is when it becomes what is known as graphic facilitation. So that's the other super clunky word that, you know, I think actually if what we really need to do is apply all our kind of visual thinking and branding processes to ourselves to somehow come up with better phrases for graphic recording and graphic facilitator. But, um, and essentially, if you're a graphic facilitator, what you do is you, you have sort of highly structured sessions which you engage your clients with, and you try and get them to do as much drawing and visualization as possible. And the power of visuals, which I think we're going to be talking about a lot more later today, you know, comes to the fore uh, then. And um, yeah, so um, maybe, maybe we'll see a bit of that. Anyway, I think I've, I've, I have gone slightly into waffle mode, but hopefully it will um, provide <laughs> some more visuals. Oh. So, yeah, in any case, so of course, the rest of the, across the rest of today, um, you, I think, you know, you're going to see us uh, illustrating the talks. And the final thing I should tell you about that is uh, we don't actually know what anyone's going to be talking about. So, uh, and even to the extent that Ricky and I didn't even discuss what I'd be saying now. It may have been obvious, I don't know. So, when you see us walking, uh, sorry, drawing there, um, everything we do is going to be pretty much off the cuff. So, uh, we're really looking forward to hearing what everyone's got to say and, and visualizing it. And then, I think the other thing is in the breaks, and if you're coming around having a look at it, if we've missed anything, do say, you know, and then we'll add it right there. It is supposed to be interactive. Okay, and that's enough for me, I think. I don't know who I'm handing over to. Oh, do you want a quest question? Yeah, what do you make of the highly... What do you make of the highly viral RS Animate videos? Um, I think they're fantastic. And I, I've, I've actually analyzed the RSA Animates guy's work to the nth degree. Um, it's interesting because he started off doing this kind of stuff. He did a lot of graphic recording. Um, he did a lot of visualizations. You know, we basically cloned his business model. And I wouldn't say that. <laughs> well, okay, fine. That's me being far too honest. But um, what he's actually done is he's now iterated into becoming a full-time animator. And I think if you look at his work, it's really, really interesting because each um, animation is actually a fully contained cartoon and he kind of blasts you with them. He has a really, he picks really nice soundtracks and each point of the illustrator is a fully contained cartoon which brought onto the screen in a really stylish way. So I really think he's setting the gold standard. And uh, we'll be rapidly copying that. But in our own way. He is rehearsed as well. It's another yeah. thing that you might... It's pretty obvious about those animations that they are pre-rehearsed, whereas what we do isn't rehearsed in any way. So there's, a, there's, an, there's an extra element to that, I think. Uh, the, I've forgotten the RSA animate... It's Andrew Park. It's Andrew Park. So what's Park. his name, Andrew? Andrew Park, Andrew and it's Park. Uh, Cognitive Media. However, we're live scribes, so you can also look at that as well. <laughs> Has anybody got any other quick queries? There'll be a kind of big... There'll be a great opportunity to talk about the work at the end of today as well, so you can quiz me then if you like. Okay. Thank you. Cheers.
You know what to expect then? Um, I think actually it's a really big difference, the difference between being scripted and not being scripted. I don't think that's just a sort of, oh, by the way, we're not scripted. I think that's quite huge. But anyway, uh, first speaker uh, coming on is uh, Andy Lane. Okay, well, I'll say a few things while they're getting prepared, because they're obviously going to uh, cover me. There's just a couple of points I think I can draw out of what uh, uh, Chris and Ricky have been saying, uh, which I could be sort of covering in part as well. Um, I think the first one is how diagramming is becoming a part of everyday business work. So I'll be coming back to that. I'm going to be talking about diagramming in aiding teaching and learning, obviously particularly reflecting on uh, experiences here at the Open University. Something else which I think is, is important to say, which should come out of this, there might be a lot of people here suddenly thinking, oh God, yeah, they're professional animators and drawers, and they can, they can make things look like they should be and cartoon this. There's a lot of diagramming that doesn't require you to be a graphic artist in any way. In fact, some of the most important diagramming can often be done. You don't need that. There are many ways and techniques of doing diagramming which does not require you to have any drawing skill whatsoever. So I think that's important to, to note as well. And it's certainly something, uh, it's one of those fears that we've always found in, in teaching here at the Open University with some of our students, particularly on the uh, systems courses, which is something I'll be talking about, and it is very important. So anyway, that was just to give them a little bit of time to uh, get prepared. Uh, I'm Professor Andy Lane, Professor of Environmental Systems here at the Open University, for those who don't know, in the Department of Communication and Systems. Um, I don't claim any authority on being uh, in terms of diagramming, except that I have variously done things with diagramming through my teaching uh, and through my research, and I'll touch on to that as well, because I see, just as Ricky and Chris have said, that diagramming is a useful way both for uh, doing things and for understanding things and for uh, not just within teaching and learning but within the world of work as well. And you'll see as I go through my presentation that there are some uh, previous publications, both teaching and research, that relate to diagramming, which I've done and, and also will be in the, the paper that comes out in the special issue of SPA. Particularly, if anybody, anybody here has ever used or known about the Science's Good Study Guide, I was a contributor to that, and Chapter 3 on working with diagrams. Yes, I own up, that was me. And so there's, this is something I've been involved with for a lot and thought a lot about, but I can no way say that I know everything that there is to know about how diagrams aid teaching and learning. I'm sure many of you have many experiences to draw, draw on and bring to this, and hopefully we can capture uh, through the day. So after all that, um, I'm going to make a set of sort of propositions or arguments which you may not agree with, which is sort of setting up what I'm going to be talking about. First is, teaching and learning requires a manipulation and communication of data and information. See that? You know, data and information we put together in various ways, whether it is within speech, whether it is within uh, text on, print, in, on paper or on screen, 
whether it be in mathematical models, whether it be in animations of things. Of course, the sort of teaching and learning process is all about people either presenting information, data and information in some way to other people, and those people, the learners, often trying to capture it and write it down and express it themselves in those types of ways. So that sort of comes behind that. Uh, but in terms of sort of visualization and diagrammatic as aspects of it, you know, it's important, I think, most agree that to do this is not just putting it there for the sake of putting it there. Often, obviously, in a lot of publications, photographs, illustrations can be used in sort of uh, graphical terms to sort of break up text and make it more interesting. But in sort of teaching and learning, really the for me, diagrams have got to be there. They've got to work. They've got to work for the teacher. They've got to work for the learner, the student. And so just having things on the side as an illustration, whether it be a cartoon or not, is not enough. What I'm talking about is diagrams, illustrations, which, let's say, help with that process of doing it. And as I've already said, what I'm thinking about here is that the educational context in which this can be happening, where the teaching and learning is happening, can be from the formal to informal, personal to the collective in groups like this, at home or at work. And I'm not just thinking, this is not just about things that happen in the classroom, what else. It's about seeing how your whole educational, lifelong learning experience can use, apart, use and draw upon uh, diagrams and diagramming, as well as those other forms of communication, speech, text, uh, and the like. But obviously in terms of presenting data and information, I say the real value of it comes in structuring that information and data into meaningful patterns. They're good just to say, having something there which uh, looks pretty, but does not convey anything to the reader. I think one of the interesting things in terms of thinking about how diagramming has featured both in general work and in teaching and learning is influenced by the sort of technologies and things that we've had available to us. Now, because the primary means of communication for most people for you know, centuries millennia has been speech. It's a verbal means of communication. Obviously, when people started writing things down, we had printing and things, so we started getting into uh, uh, having that verbalization in, in terms of written text. No, but text dominates in terms of d doing these things because there was not the easy means for people to create and share sort of diagrams in that same way. Particularly, I think that with a lot of sort of text-based things, in terms of writing, we've had so many forms and styles of writing developed, and we're sort of taught it at school and things like that, that the, the, the way of expressing things and structuring data and information into meaningful patterns through words, whether through speech or text, is what is we're so, com so common, what we're so used to. We're not so used to either producing diagrams or expecting to produce diagrams, and we've got these issues which have been raised about uh, you know, people perhaps don't accept diagrams. And I think part of that is because there aren't the same 
sets of ideas about grammar, syntax, and structuring of diagrams which are commonly understood. You know, the grammar of speech, the grammar of text in print on screen is sort of hammered home. But what's the grammar? What's the rules of a particular diagramming? Even such things as graphical charts. You know, it, it, this is not something. This is not something that people find easy to understand or to interpret in any ways, because often they're not taught. You know, what are the sort of structuring devices? How do these fit together? So I think there are issues there in, in terms of doing that, because the value of diagrams can be not to replace, but to perhaps to complement and to supplement those other means which you do, is about their sense-making of complex situations, a representation of that, that it is possible through diagrams to have on one page, one sheet like this, something which might be 10, 15, 20, 100 pages of text sort of cover some of the same issues. So it's the way in which diagramming can capture the essence and the overview and the sort of pictures uh, of the, the whole picture, the holistic picture of the uh, situation which can be important for aiding the understanding alongside that text, alongside that speech and things. So it's not to replace things, it's not to be there, it is there to supplement and complement. And it's particularly, so I think this is uh, important in, in across the whole set of STEM subjects because in all the STEM subjects we're obviously dealing with complex areas, often multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, that can be trying to get over complex conceptual ideas can be very difficult in expressing them and diagramming can help with uh, doing that and particularly in the area of uh, systems thinking practice uh, which uh, I'm most involved with then these things are essential. It's about taking a systemic view of issues, take a systemic view of it a holistic way, and as I said, a good way to do, to capture holes, the whole system is in a diagrammatic form, whereas you know, to write it all out can take much longer. But of course there are different types of diagram uh, and, and things, and here are just some types of uh, diagra diagrammatic forms which are used in, in, particularly in STEM subjects, it's not comprehensive, but the now, it's the analog representation. This is the thing of trying to do a drawing of something as it might appear. So these are just uh, uh, obviously cross-sections of a leaf uh, showing the, the cell structures and, and things within that. So it's, it's the type of thing trying to show something to people which would not be obvious unless they're using a microscope and then there's all the problems of doing that. So it's to, to show things as they might be in real life but in a particular form. This is schematic representations of maps and things showing relationships between things to try and make order of them. A big area for STEM subjects is what I call here symbolic representations. It's effectively the quantification of stuff, the sort of having the data, numbers. How do you represent stuff, quantities in these forms and obviously graphs, charts are very important in sort of in, in the whole, most of the STEM subjects because of the mathematical basis of what we're doing. So this is important, but uh, it's often an area where many students will struggle even to understand what we think is one of the most basic elements of di diagrammatic representation in terms of graphs and charts, mathematical relationships and 
alike. Of course, then we can get into more conceptual representations of the thinking of people, of processes, which may not be visible things that you can see, but it's trying to put together what are the components that go into this process, into this product we need to think about. So it's about sort of structuring the conceptual thinking side of these things. Of course, this is, I say, this is not comprehensive. We're going to see many more types of uh, diagramming forms uh, in the next uh, few hours. If I can find here, I'm going to show something else about diagramming. Of course, we've got these things about whether they are more focused on structure, showing structure, or whether it's more about process. So, one of my sources for this is something I prepared earlier. This is a study unit on uh, the uh, Open University's uh, learning space, part of its open learning, its open educational resources things. And this is about systems diagramming. This is from a, a course materials produced some years ago. And here it just shows a classification there of different diagram types where I've tried to put them into those which mainly sort of dealing with structure and those that mainly deal with process, but there are some, and it's, it's always never hard and fast and fuzzy edges there. And there's a little bit of relevance to later down. There's a, there's a graphic that's very difficult to see, which is a classification of you know, particular systems di diagrams in terms of what they, they sort of represent. You've got plenty of time later on to go and look at these in detail and understand that as just showing that in terms of... Uh, examples that there are different ways to, to do that. And of course, with modern technologies, we've got the issues of moving from just thinking about the static diagrams in print, on screen, or things like that, to the dynamic diagrams, as all visualizations, flash animations like this, which are to, to illustrate processes and things, and because it's dynamic, because it goes through those things, then you can Better run it again. It will. Hmm. Graphic up there. It's in the way. It's in the way if I was trying to play it again. Uh, go over that. So, just to show again that the, you know that the whole range, the nature of diagrams is very diverse. But you know, I think the. The sort of major point I'm making is in my experience is that, you know, for us as teachers and us as practicing STEM people, then, yes, we're familiar with a lot of these and the things, but for a lot of our students and learners coming to this first time, they don't have that understanding of these elements of what diagramming is about. And it's a, quite a challenge for us to uh, teach a lot of those of course, another aspect of this is diagramming for teaching and learning can be a very personal thing, whether it's done in a classroom or whether it's through multimedia teaching materials. There's, we put it together, there's a student at home or whatever, they're working through it, doing it on themselves. But just as it's doing here and we'll see later, a lot of the most power of diagramming, particularly when you start getting out into the world of work, is perhaps the co-creation of a collective diagram. It's not just me as, a, as a, a learner, as a student, trying to make sense of this and draw a diagram and try and think 
what it is I'm doing and what comes out of it to help my understanding. It's being able to do that with other people because you've got that power of that dialogue, that interaction. But it's also important how we can use a diagram as a focus for discussion, even within a group. Provide a diagram and then get people talking about it. And of course, it's just, it, this is just that active learning of, of getting people to engage with it and getting the different perspectives and often those different perspectives can be important in, in people understanding better what that diagram might be represent or what the conversation around that diagram means. So again, again, this is not just about diagramming for the sake of diagramming, this is diagramming to aid that sense-making process. And so a lot of this can be through those mediated dis discussions. You know, and there's a type of diagramming there of, of writing stuff down on... Uh, 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 sticky notes, and then just arranging them in orders and drawing, uh, collecting them into different groups and labeling. You know, that's all part of that diagramming process, but it's the, the way it goes through it and the way you do that can help people's understanding. They've been involved in it uh, and they think more about it. Well, of course, but then we have to have that little caveat. So another thing I'd, I'd like to say, which is partly where I started in picking up what Chris and Ricky have said, I think the, the, the use of diagrams in teaching and learning, the things we do, should bear some relation to use within professional practice, in STEM subjects. This is what people out there really do. This shouldn't be just a diagram they're using to say, well, that's a nice thing to do, but they never, ever use again or encounter again or likely to do. We should be focusing on those types of diagrams, which you think, this is the type of thing that are going to be used, whether they're working now or when they're working later. It's, it's very important to do so. And so in the last little bit of my talk, I just want to go through some experiences on that with, within the sort of systems teaching here at the Open University. And a few years ago, I did a, a small survey of systems practitioners, uh, and in particularly to understand what their use of diagramming was in what they do. As I said, in systems practice is one which diagramming features quite a lot. Many of the methods and methodologies in, in systems things involve the diagramming, diagramming stages and the like. So I wanted to understand how they did that because this followed on from a, a review and sort of picking up what Simon said earlier, a paper I wrote with a colleague uh, in uh, systems practice and action research uh, about 12 years ago now, where we reviewed the number of diagrams that were incorporated in books and also that journal in the articles there, which showed that although the sort of practice of systems is very diagram-rich, the actual artifacts or the reports or the outputs of research and teaching and other things is very diagram poor, and it's an interesting thing. But you can see here, this is just a, a, a sample of 59, um, and it gives the, uh, the reasons why they use diagrams within their system studies, and say these are sort of pra professional practitioners doing the type of things which uh, uh, Chris and Ricky are doing, going into for a client, going into a company, organization, doing things, doing systems work with them. 
So they, they use diagramming because it, it provides that clarity of thought, understanding, showing relationships, boundaries, and links, showed the whole situation. Some of those things I've already talked about. So you know, for people out there, systems practitioners, diagrams are very useful tools. It's not the only thing they do, but they're a useful part of their, their tool set, their armory. As I said, it's something I do a lot in my own research, so a lot of my research into environmental matters. This is about a project on uh, uh, managing organic waste to land. I was involved with for DEFRA, and this involved a lot of stakeholder mapping and, and, and such like, and this is with getting stakeholder views from all the different stakeholders involved in the, the processing of organic waste, food waste, green waste, and things like that. And the report that was produced on that includes a lot of these types of diagrams. But this is part of not only engaging and capturing and eliciting evidence and, and data for a research study, but also useful as a way of presenting some of that information back to the client, in this case, DEFRA. So, again, as highlight, this is something I do do myself and think it's important. The last point I just want to make, of course, comes back to that one about uh, how new technologies are influencing things. I, I made that, that, that claim that, that it's been a rise of new technologies, new publishing technologies, other things, that it's become easier to produce, or for us to produce, better looking uh, diagrammatic or, uh, forms than it used to be in very many ways. It's not just the pen and paper stuff that's going on over here, but it's how new technologies can do that. And compared to do it automatically, and we hear about the sort of creating the visualizations from open data and how we can really do this. But it really sort of throws up issues about, well, how do new technologies help with that teaching and learning process? Do they actually get in the way of it? Is it it's easy to say, well, it's great doing it on pen and paper. People will really sort of feel what it is they're doing, things like that. But if they're trying to do a, uh, a diagram on screen, then they're just getting more wound up by can they get this arrow going this way and can they do this and can, with the line quite as it is. And so they get more hung up by the use of the technology than in terms of trying to make sense of what it is they're doing by creating a meaningful diagram and sharing with others. And this has been a big issue for... Um, our systems teaching over the years, and again, uh, with a couple of colleagues, uh, I think Magnus is, is here today, Magnus, remember this, we, one of our uh, systems, uh, of course, a second level course, T205, um, in the past, we, it had many different ways in which we were actually teaching the diagramming. So there was, the, obviously, people were coming with prior knowledge of, of particular diagramming types, and there's a whole range of diagramming types we looked at, but this is just covering the whole spread of them. We had teaching of diagramming techniques in so discursive print, as we've always had. We, we had an appendix, which was just a listing of all the different diagramming types and what they were. At that time, we actually had, it wasn't called the VLE there, but a web zone. We had web-based versions of teaching this and some um, flash animations of, uh, of diagramming types. We had some of the same material on a CD-ROM. They were able to do some group work, their tutorials and things like that. They were obviously expected to do diagrams as part of their 
uh, tutor marked assignments and the feedback on that. And of course, they could do some of their own. So there are all these different ways in which they might be engaging with the diagramming. And this just shows you know, how, how many were involved in uh, participation in those different modes. Uh, and then right there, percentage rating was fairly or very valuable. You know, surprisingly, the, the, you know, the lowest ones about the prior knowledge uh, there in TAMI feedback, but in terms of the, the sort of the, what might be called the, some of the primary teaching modes through there, you'll see how group work comes out top, because of course, again, it's this collective experience of doing it with other people makes it easier than trying to struggle with this your, yourself. But we're quite surprised about how the different modes of uh, presenting this information as teaching materials to them didn't seem to be too different. The new modes were just as good as the old modes, discursive print was, uh, or the web zone was just as good as discursive print. Of course, this is, this is only just a snapshot. And I have to sort of give the, the little health warning is that, of course, many people were using all of those or a good set of those. So we don't know what the interactions would be if they only had one in isolation. They only had discursive print and they only, as opposed to stuff on CD-ROM. But I think it's just highlighting, it's an indication that new technologies, they, potentially they can get in the way of the diagram experience. But I think as more and more applications, more and more uh, packages are being developed, which are much easier and user friendlier to use, then new technologies can certainly help with that because you could also do this collective uh, drawing. You don't have to necessarily be in the same room. It could be distributed activity, people all around the world collaborating on a common uh, diagram. So I'll finish with this quote from Carney and Levin, which is very similar to the one in the sort of spa paper I talked about in a sense, it's this issue of the invisibility of diagrams in, in illustrations and pictures in our accounts, both the research and teaching of what we do as compared to everyday practice. If you want to know more about sort of diagramming stuff from the university, you go to uh, the uh, uh, open learn, particularly the learning space, search for diagrams, you'll get lots of different stuff across lots of different uh, uh, modules, and those are my sources. Thank you very much. Uh, Andy, you're prepared to take questions? Yeah, of course. I was wondering about the amount of bias involved in diagramming. If two people draw the same text, it would be different. Even the, the one who is 
visualizing it. Uh, yes, there is. That is always an, an issue uh, in terms of uh, diagramming, in terms of the, who's in control of the pen. But you talk about it being biased, and yes, there is bias, but I think one of the things we have to remember, just as with uh, spoken word, with the written word, is you're accepting this is the perspective, this is the views coming from that person. So in terms of saying a, a particular diagram is totally objective as opposed to subjective, then there is always a fine line. Because even with a, a, a graph or a chart, the way it's presented can give different meanings or give different meanings to how people will interpret it. So even things which are based on, on quantitative numbers and things which you think, you know, this should be fine. As with everything, I mean, what we want to have is reflective learners, students, reflective practitioners, who don't just take things as they are, but accept them and trying to see what is the perspective, what, where is this person coming from, what are the arguments they're making and understanding. So yes, there is always bias, but there's always bias in every type of output we make, in my view. Yeah. How do you overcome uh, producing or authoring uh, illustrated text for international market, particularly where you have uh, different cultures? Do you, what suggestions you make? Do you suggest uh, that there should be co-authorship or co-illustrators? Uh, What's your experience? Yeah, well... Uh, I can't say I, I have uh, a great experience of uh, working uh, in different countries and different cultures in, in terms of doing this, but I, I do recognize that that's the case. Uh, my answer would be that if you're using diagrams, if there are these different cultural assumptions about diagrams uh, and the use of them uh, within an output, then, uh, of course, you've got to reflect that. One way to make that easier in, in terms of uh, producing outputs which can be used internationally is to license it under an open content license, a Creative Commons license, so that somebody can always adapt and change those diagrammatic elements within it. All that stuff there that I showed you on, on the uh, Open Learns Learning Space is under a Creative Commons license, open educational resources, and it, again, it enables people to adapt and rework if there's a necessity or thought on the person who's putting that together, say the teacher creating something that we need to represent this diagrammatic stuff in a different way. Well, I haven't got any easy answers on, about how you, how you do that ad adaptation because I've, I've not done it myself. I had no idea before, actually, before I started, I'm, I'm, I'm suddenly full of admiration, even more admiration for Andy Lane than I was before, because there's something about standing here knowing that something's happening over there that actually I hadn't even thought about before, and it's sort of, it's not an entirely comfortable feeling. Uh, so actually, I've just made a deal with myself, I'm not going to look over there uh, until, <laughs> until things have uh, yes, moved on a bit. Um, this is a double act. Uh, Steve Morse and I are going to just present a, a brief paper about uh, rich pictures, and rich pictures are pretty much where we started our conversation about this colloquium. 
Uh, it was about their, the strangeness of them, uh, the malleability of them, the applicability of them, the u- ubiquitousness of them uh, that really got us started thinking about, hey, we ought to talk about this. So um, we, we, we could say that pictures hold up a mirror to human experience. They reveal and hide human interaction, but they do a lot more than that. Uh, and I'll start off by just saying something which, uh, it's just a, something which has emerged, I suppose, from practice, is that uh, people will draw things which they won't say and they won't write. Now, I've churned that one out a lot over the years, but... It's quite odd that people will uh, do that and use a picture as a, as a vehicle to express things that they wouldn't otherwise express. And, and, and quite why that is, I've read around it quite a lot and I still don't know the answer. I mean, there are cognitive models, there are different models for why that might be the case. It also appears to be universal, from my experience. Uh, again, purely from my experience. But the picture holds up an, an image of the individual, it holds up an individual of the culture, and it, 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 it speaks a thousand words. And why did you put that bit on here? I'm not going to sing that. Song. I don't know. Well, uh, I, I refer you to my colleague if you wish to have the final bit there sung. Ain't doing it. Um, if we think about uh, if we think about pictures, uh, these Chauvet cave paintings go back tens of thousands of years, and it seems that people have always wanted to draw. They've always wanted to express things as diagrams. Now, uh, if you've seen Werner Herzog's movie, uh, uh, The Cave of Forgotten Dreams, you'll have seen a lot about these paintings. And as far as I could understand from all the wonderful and very erudite conversation which came out of the scientists is they hadn't got a clue what they meant. Uh, Although they didn't actually quite put it that way, they put it in a much more clever way, which made it sound like they might have an idea about why they were drawn, but not really. And what's stunning about these pictures isn't just the fact that they are tens of thousands of years old and represent the earliest forms of human artifice, but actually some of the parts of the picture are tens of thousands of years younger or older than earlier parts of the pictures. So these are extraordinary works of continuity, longevity, and human inspiration. And there they are. Um, I'm not going to go into a whirlwind tour of uh, diagrams and pictures through history, but pictures have been with us through a hell of a long time. Through When diagrams moved into glyphs and icons and, and, and started to become language, absorbed, whether chicken or egg, whether diagrams came before language, language comes before dialogue, uh, who knows. But we've got a long history of using pictures and using them from all kinds of ways and to make all kinds of impressions upon people. They are emotive things. They are things that tell us about the way people think and act. They're instructive. They tell us at a very uh, human level about other human beings and about... You don't need a translation to get a sense of meaning. They can be used in all kinds of extraordinary ways by extraordinary people to tell extraordinary stories. And they can be used humorously and in in jest and in all kinds of manners. The picture, from its earliest representation to its later manifestation, has constantly been with us. It's kind of marked alongside us. It's marched along with us through history. We've always drawn our stuff. I almost started looking over there, but then I turned back again. And very clever people have also recognized this. Moving on. 
We had a number of hypotheses about rich pictures, Steve, Steve and I, in, in our work, and we thought about how pictures were used, how they were applied. And we came up with these five, anyway, as, as working hypotheses for us to work with. Rich pictures provide an opportunity for optimal indiscretion. They provide this capacity to do things, say things that may be, and I'll give you a couple of examples in a minute. Explicit conscious use of pictures is as important as implicit unconscious meaning. A picture will often tell you more about the artist than it tells about the story they're telling. And it tells things <coughs> that aren't expected. They're surprising things. And as Andy was alluding, rich pictures allow groups to express themselves in ways that are often unusual and challenging. Rich pictures can therefore be expressions of the inner life or what we would call the soul of the group. And a lot of our work and a lot of our research has been with groups using rich pictures, using other kinds of diagrams to try and tell and represent themselves. Therefore, rich pictures can also be analysis tools which allow us to understand. If we can read the picture, then we can read the group. If we can read the picture, we can read the individual. If we can read the picture, we get a sense of the inside out and the outside in of the group or the individual in question. And these are hypotheses. These are also challenges to us in our research. A couple of examples of rich pictures, just very briefly. And those who have seen these before, I apologize. And those who haven't seen them before, well, I just use them because they're kind of good. This one's a National Health Service rich picture drawn by some very uptight National Health Service uh, senior executives who wouldn't be, um, telling the story of their trust. And there's so much in this picture. I often describe this as the worst rich picture I've ever seen, and yet it's one of the best rich pictures for the very same reason. There are things there which you'd like to know. The, the group in the middle are the group who are drawing the picture. Their boss is shown with a light bulb on his head glowing brightly and he's in a Zen-like position showing his wisdom. <laughs> this says a lot about the sycophancy, which is an operation in the National Health Service. You see lots of things around it. There's all kinds of concern around waiting lists. Top left-hand corner, there's an abacus indicating some considerable concern around the numbers. There's a consultant playing golf. I allow you to draw your own conclusions, what that means. And the picture on the right is really rather good. There's a happy hospital, a happy patient, and so notice that the dead patient is also happy. <laughs> Litigation is an important consideration. A rich picture, as I've said before, can be terrible. It's a terrible rich picture, and yet, and yet, doesn't it tell a story? This is a rich picture. Someone was asking earlier on about cultural, different cultural adaptations. This rich picture was drawn by a bunch of, uh, a group, sorry, a group of... Uh, Financial uh, advisors and uh, planners in Beijing, in China. These are all Chinese planners. And uh, they drew this rich picture. Now, to me, it's a brilliant rich picture. I could talk about it a lot. But going back to my theme earlier on, that people will draw things they won't talk about or won't say, you'll notice that towards the middle at the top, there's a, pic there's a, there's a bag, and it's got yuan, and it's got sterling on it. And to the right of that, there is a kind of, Another bag with a dotted line, which has also got yuan and sterling on it. Now, this is money disappearing into pockets. Now, as you all know, as we all know, there is no corruption in China, and money does not disappear into any pocket. And there, that would never happen, it never has happened, and it never will happen, ever. And then there's the picture. So pictures help us to understand and say things that we can't say, and they're often the interpretation of them is also beguiling and interesting. At this point, I'd like to hand across to my colleague. 
I was waiting for you to sort of jump in seamlessly. <laughs> Thank you, Simon. We've been doing this work for some years now, so uh, to, and it probably shows actually in our faces, but we've been working together for a long time doing uh, rich pictures, doing soft systems workshops for many years. You're all going to be doing some uh, later on today. And when we were writing this paper for this particular conference, for this workshop, um, we've been thinking about how to analyze rich pictures, how to try and tease them apart, how to look for what are the good things, what are the bad things, are there such things as good and bad things within rich pictures? How can you appraise a rich picture? And we spent some time looking at the literature on this, looking at the literature upon how people in the past have tried to draw up uh, analysis and an analytical frameworks for pictures, how to appraise pictures. And believe it or not, there is a fairly extensive literature on this, uh, not written by people like us in the kind of environmental science systems areas, but in the art world. I mean, people have been writing about empirical analyses and frameworks for analyzing pictures, the quality of pictures. What you see here, really, up on this slide, is just a summary of some of the literature that we've actually come across. I mean, what they usually do is set out a kind of fairly sort of objective, inverted commas, a fairly objective hierarchy or sort of structure in which you can actually, what things to look for in to judge the quality of a particular piece of art. And the literature goes back, as you see there, surprisingly, to 1928. And you've got that book you see, The Scientific Method in Aesthetics, where this chap actually drew up this particular framework. More recent examples are towards the bottom of the slide. Barrett's work with his 18 principles, uh, Velmeil Jensen's Five Criteria, Carney's Seven Steps Process. All these are fairly kind of set out frameworks for judging the quality of a piece of work, a piece of art. Now, you've come across a more recent one, I think, haven't you? Do you want to mention that? Well, actually, it came from these guys, the Scott McLeod. Uh, ah, okay. Uh, in the cartoon, what's, what's the book called? Understanding. This is, this is, these, see, would you buy that? Would you get that? Understanding comics. It's not serious, is it? And yet within that brilliant little uh, book, uh, there is a six-step way of understanding and applying and considering and diagnosing and analyzing pictures of all kinds. Quite brilliant, actually. But would the title grab you? Would you be serious if you bought one? So really, this, this scholar's thinking... This is the Carney seven-step framework here. Um, this is his hierarchy, the one on the right-hand side, steps one to seven. You've got the name of the step. This is not my name. This is the name he gives that particular step. And the notes which you see there is, is our attempt to try and uh, sort of summarize what he regards as being the important aspect of each of those steps. So you start at the top, locate the style of the artwork, uh, descriptive features and structures, primary aesthetic features, uh, and so on, all the way down towards the bottom of that seven-step process. So the idea being you, you apply that framework to a piece of art using the kind of indicators, notes, which he has there, and therefore you can arrive at a conclusion whether that art has value, whether it's a good quality piece of art. Now, what we've done is actually taken Carney's seven-step process and added our own interpretation of that on the far right-hand side, as applied to rich pictures. All right? So we've just taken the steps that he states, and we've put them there in terms of rich pictures. So for example, number one, the context of the rich picture, uh, the problem or system being analyzed, the content of the rich picture, the use of color 
the use of shapes, the use of drawings within the rich picture? Are there any features which dominate within the picture? Perhaps because they are placed more centrally or larger or whatever. All right? So the kind of rich pictures you saw earlier, the NHS example, the China example, you can apply that sort of framework to it. That's simply mapping over Tom Thomkani's framework. There was this brilliant project we've been working on for the last couple of years, this European Union-funded project. It's called POINT. And the uh, POINT project uh, was really geared towards looking at the policy influence of indicators. They were interested in knowing how indicators are used by people in the policy arena. So it's a very applied project, all right? We've got all these indicators, a plethora of indicators in the European Union, economic indicators, social indicators, environmental indicators. How are these indicators used by policymakers? All right. Now, a lot of the research involved kind of interviews, one-way process of people doing, doing interviews or whatever. We weren't involved in that. What they asked us to do was to do a soft systems analysis of this by, get this, traveling around Europe, seven countries, whatever it was, running these kind of workshops, asking indicator people to analyze that question. All right? So each workshop, we began by giving them that question. Can you please analyze the policy influence of indicators? What do you think enhances or limits the policy influence of indicators? The pictures you see up there uh, are just for two workshops. They were held in this magnificent castle in Slovakia, um, one of the best venues I think we've ever had for these kind of workshops, a fantastic see, uh, venue for these things. And in each of those workshops, we put the people into groups, so usually three or four groups, and we got them working on that particular question. And they began the process, as you see here, by drawing a rich picture a rich picture of the policy influence of indicators. The workshop started up there, uh, essentially looking at rich pictures. It then went through a fairly kind of standard process, a soft systems process, root definitions, vision of change, action plan, and so on. And so they ended up right at the very bottom of that slide, drawing some clear conclusions and some clear recommendations as to how indicators could be better geared, better enhanced, better presented to policymakers. I must admit, I have a confession here, Simon, I must admit, the first part of that process, the rich picture part, always for me was the best part of that process. It really was. It was the part of the process where people really were, they really got enthused and engaged in thinking about that particular topic. From that rich picture, they began to get more narrative-orientated. So having had the rich picture, they then start to produce text from that. And I must admit, as soon as you start moving through the more texty steps of that process, it became a bit more objective, it became a bit more constrained. But the rich picture part of that process really was my favorite part of it. It really was. We liked it so much that towards the end of the process, we actually got them to do rich picture at the end as well. So we began the rich picture, which was the scene as it currently is, and towards the end of the process, we'd ask them to draw another rich picture, which was what they think the scene would be if their recommendations were incorporated. So we ended up with two rich pictures, before and after, and then we could compare the two pictures together. This was the uh, picture, uh, one picture produced by a group, uh, asking, they were looking at sustainable development indicators. The 
picture is rich in insight. There's not a lot to it. If you look at that picture, there's not a lot there, but there's a lot of insight in that picture. You've got the beauty, the lovely three monkeys, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. What they were trying to say here, if you look at the puppet master there as well, what they were trying to say was that economic indicators dominate in sustainable development. And they were decrying the fact that economic indicators dominate. GDP per capita, right? These kind of very hard economic indicators really dominated the sustainable development discourse. And the whole imagery which you see there was really proclaiming that. This is a problem. We have this dominance of economic indicators. So a fantastic picture, a lot of stuff within that, and that is a group process. So what you'll see in there is a negotiated process amongst the group itself. Bottom right-hand corner. If you look at the bottom right-hand corner, you see justice. Uh, in a the sense, there's a line which you see there. And you've got this imagery underneath it there, the scales of justice and so on. There was a sense there, and it's almost as if they're saying it in a kind of way which almost kind of disturbs them, in a sense, that there's an injustice here, that sustainable development should be a lot more than simply economic indicators. And yet, down in the bottom corner, there's this sense of an injustice, an imbalance, that something is wrong within sustainable development. This was the group that looked at agricultural indicators. Uh, their rich picture was what you would probably call a more standard rich picture. Uh, they, were, they were really concerned with uh, pollution aspects, really. They were, so what you have here is a picture that's got a river running through it, You've got various land use systems. You see cattle there and crops and tractors and all the rest of it, waste treatment. And the flows of all the waste, of all the pollution into that river system, which then causes damage. If you look there, if you follow the river from the left-hand side to the right-hand side, you start seeing the impacts of pollution on that river system. Their imagery was not as exciting in some ways as the previous group. This imagery here is more kind of what you would call textbook-type imagery, where they're talking of a fairly textbook situation. This group, and it's interesting if you look at the two groups as well, because the first group was a very dynamic group, a lot of interaction between them, a lot of excitement, a lot of talking, a lot of anger, a lot of, a lot of you know, interaction. This group, very placid, didn't really have much interaction between them, Dominated, I think, by one person, if I remember right, this group. And they just drew a picture which is almost like a textbook representation of what they saw the reality being, really, in terms of agriculture. And that got, that's really what got us thinking. Because we did so many of these particular, we did about 20-odd of these, these rich pictures. And you can see that difference in terms of the quality, the richness of the picture, also linked to the ways in which the groups work together. There was a link there to group dynamics. And we tentatively came up with this link that the quality of the picture, the depth of insight, was linked in some way to whether, how the group worked together. It's dynamic. I'm not going to go into that. We haven't got much time. This is just our interpretation of those two rich pictures. This is used in the Kearney's framework, seven steps again on the left-hand side. And these were just our conclusions, basically, from each of those seven steps comparing the two rich pictures. In basic simplistic terms, uh, the sustainable development group, we thought, was a better rich picture compared to the agriculture rich picture. And conclusions. 
we think rich pictures are massively underestimated, uh, really, the value of rich pictures. The problem is that rich pictures are often seen as part of a bigger process. And the rich pictures are just the first step of that process. And we think that, in a sense, rich pictures can get lost within that process because the group simply moves on. It's a journey. They do the rich picture, they finish that step, they then move on to the next step. The rich picture gets put on a wall, like you see here, and just gets left behind. And we felt that was a pity. That, in a sense, what, what so surprised us was the lack of literature, really, which analyzed rich pictures, the value of rich pictures. It's almost as if it was the end point of the process that mattered, not the process in terms of getting there. And we felt that there was something missing in the literature here. So really, we're very surprised by that. We think there are frameworks that can help us to understand, to pull apart the quality of rich pictures. Um, now, fair enough, we think the Carney framework we've used here is by no means the best, arguably. There are many others that could be used. You could develop your own framework. So we, we think there's a lot of scope here for further work in terms of trying to appreciate rich pictures as entities in themselves and not just a stepping stone in a process. Thank you. <laughs> Questions. Do you agree with us? <laughs> yes, no, maybe. Yes. Well, I'll answer that later. <laughs> I had a question about the context of rich pictures. So when two or more people sit around and create a graphic, they have a context and they know roughly what they'd like to express, and they, have cer they assign certain meanings implicitly to some of the uh, graphics there. When you put that out of context, so you, you keep a picture after uh, the, the session, w will that context resurface to go back to the interpretation of the Chinese finance management? Mm -hmm. I hadn't necessarily seen the dotted sack with money as bribery. It could have been management fees or uh, some other sort of uh, money siphoned away for, for legal purposes. So, so what's, what's your interpretation of context and the importance of that? Just, just quickly then, I'll hand over to Simon. Um, I should have said actually, guys, when we do these rich pictures, each group, when it puts its rich picture on the wall, like you see here, we do have a session where they talk about it. So each group, each group then discusses the rich picture it's produced and explains it for everybody else inside the room. So the two examples I gave you for Slovakia, you know, we can understand it because we were there. <laughs> we were there. <laughs> we heard them talking about it. So there's a narrative that went alongside that rich picture in a sense. Now, I mean, these guys, for example, when you look at the pictures that they're producing, the narrative is, is what we're doing here. The talk we're giving is running in parallel with that. So really you have to keep in mind what we're saying here when you come to interpret what these guys have done there. And then you have to think about, well, okay, you know, when, when he said that, what part of the picture does that relate to? In the rich picture case, they produced the rich pictures, put them on the wall, and then talked about them. And then we videoed the presentations as well. And we spent time afterwards looking at them and seeing what they were saying. So we can understand the nuances better, perhaps, than simply taking them in isolation. I don't know whether you want to add to it. Not really. I mean, that's pretty good, actually. Oh, what? Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> bad. I believed him. But um, I think there is... A just the point that if, if the picture is nuanced by discourse, then you've got greater interpretation. But I think this also dovetails quite well. Uh, following our talk, the next talk is going to be given by Tessa, Tessa Berg, 
who's going to talk about rich pictures and take, uh, take you on a little bit. I think also, Tessa, can I set you up for a fall here? Thanks. Uh, all right, okay, so setting Tessa up here, I think there's also a, a, a separate discussion about how you could interpret a picture by its use of icon, by, by, an, inter by an interpretation almost divorced from the narrative, which you might hear somebody say afterwards. And I think Tessa's research takes us into that area quite nicely. So I'll, I'll leave that there. Any other questions? We've got time for two more questions. Yes. Um, you said about the dynamics of the group. Um, did you actually examine who was in the groups and were particular types of people more dynamic in their interaction, um, say accountants and um, admin clerks, engineers and technicians? Okay, okay, right. It's very, very dangerous ground, this. this is, uh, <laughs> no matter how you answer this question, you're going to get beaten up by somebody. Uh, okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, I think the main thing there really is, is that you can't typologize like that. You can't say that an accountant is going <laughs> to do a really dull, rich picture. We've had some great pictures by accountants. The, the, only, the only thing I'd say, which I think is not going to leave me in any danger at all, given who's here today, is that probably the most uh, dysfunctional and useless uh, elements that you can get into a rich picture is when you get a politician coming into the room and disrupting the group and screwing the whole thing up like mad. But apart from that, everybody else is great. <laughs> we did have that. <laughs> um, I would also say as well that when we actually did measure group dynamics, we used a number of different methodologies for measuring group dynamics. We, I'm not going to go into it here because it's obviously it's not related to this. But um, as a kind of general rule of thumb, the best rich pictures were drawn by the people in the countries that had the most experience of indicators. All right. So the Nordic countries. I'm thinking of Finland, Denmark, for example. They produce the best rich pictures because they have a lot more experience of using indicators. Slovakia is a new accession state within the European Union. So what you tend to find with Slovakia was that they didn't have as much experience of indicators in that national context. And that's why in some cases you tend to get this kind of more regimented, textbooky type approach to, to the problem. Whereas in Finland and Denmark, they could draw upon their real, tangible, practical experience. And so I think the differences we saw were more between country contexts than it was between group membership contexts. Yeah? We did record genders of groups. We did record their background. You know, we recorded all of that, but we didn't see so, so much of a match with that, really. It was the country context that, that did come over. Well, I mean, we, we ran interviews at the end of every workshop as well. So we did do a number of individual interviews with, with people that took part in the workshops to try and get a sense of whether our understanding matched pretty much what, what their understanding was. And certainly the message that came over was it was very much linked to this real experience and frustration as well with indicators. In some of the cases, like Finland, uh, there was a real tension between local indicator sets and national indicator sets. And you had people then that worked at national level and local level. And the problem that people felt at local level was that the people at national level didn't listen to them and in terms of indicators. So there were lots of frictions there which came over in the rich pictures from that particular country. And it was related to, again, this experience which they had. Uh, the countries like, like Slovakia, like Malta, actually, 
you tended to see a more kind of a textbook, this is what we think it is, because the textbook tells us it's like this, rather than drawn upon real experience. Oh, time for one more question, please. Yeah, there's a couple of observations, maybe rather than questions, but um, I've just, in a way, I have a, a consideration that it might be quite dangerous to try and apply a, a good-bad framework to rich pictures, which will actually potentially inhibit the very process which it's trying to, to get at. That's my first observation, which you may or may not want to come back on. The second one is that by applying a, a framework like Carney's that you presented, and I, I'm, I'm fresh to that, so I don't profess to be an expert in that, but um, I would have thought that a framework a set of criteria should actually have some reference to soft systems methodology itself if that's the context in which you're trying to analyze this and therefore what makes a good rich picture potentially is the extent to which it supports the subsequent um, steps in that, in that process um, picking up on that point that you made right at the end of your, your presentation which is it's not just a, an end in itself it should be a means to, get, to getting you further through that um, analysis so I'm a bit surprised in the sense that those criteria don't have some reference to the extent to which those pictures enable you to get further down that, that, that process. That's a very good question. We knew we were going to get it. Simon? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that's great. And uh, I'm going to work on that. No, that's really good. That's really good. I hadn't really thought of that properly like that. It's nicely put. And you're right. Um, what we've been doing so far, I, I think part, only in mitigation, is that because we've been trying to work out how rich pictures are used and interpreted, we've kind of had a process and we've had a, a, an, interpret, an, an analytical process and they've kind of been segregated. Now, what you're suggesting is an integration of the, uh, the group process and also the analytical process so that they're more harmonised. Uh, I hadn't thought of that. I'm glad I now have. And uh, I won't be uh, copywriting you at all on that. Thank you. There was, um, on Carney's framework... Uh, towards the, if you look towards the very top there, locate the styles, what he refers to it as. Um, we took that, in essence, I, mean, I suppose it's the closest to what you're saying in a sense. We took that to mean uh, the context of the rich picture and to, to, the degree to which the rich picture actually addressed the question that we asked the group to do. Okay? So, uh, for example, the two examples we just showed, the agriculture group went off message, really, the, agricult uh, the agriculture group went away from indicators. They went away from the influence of indicators, not just in the rich picture, but through the whole of their subsequent soft systems analysis. And I remember distinctly, actually, we have to constantly try to gently try to pull them back to the message. The other group, the sustainable development group, which I showed to Malta Slovakia, they stuck to the message. Most groups did, actually. Most groups did stick to the message. So we use that first one up there, uh, locate the style, to broadly mean whether the group stuck to, you know, kept in tune with that particular message of the, of the soft systems process. Um, that's probably the closest we've got to <laughs> what you've suggested, really. Yeah. Sorry, we have, to, we have to stop at that point because uh, we've got the next. Just, just to introduce this part of the, the day, um, partly as an attempt to keep lunch moving, as it were, and to not allow lunch to do what lunch does, we've got two workshop sessions now, which will both be begun by uh, a talk, which, which then introduces the process. The next uh, two hours, I'd like you to be quite relaxed about. Let's say, listen. Uh, if encouraged to do things and you feel like doing things, please do things. Grab some lunch. Do come back. We'd, we'd like to keep this moving. And then formally in the afternoon session, we'll be back on this kind of more talk and chalk 
going on at the same time. But over the next couple of hours, it's going to be a little bit different.